0: We're on a shorter catechism question and answer eight and nine uh question eight asks uh what has god decreed I'm, I don't have it here uh, it says the answer is that God has decreed uh, his works of creation and providence so it's setting up for us the rest of the structure of uh, uh, of what of what's about to come in the catechism it's saying that God has You know, we we saw this uh, previously, God has decreed everything, he's sovereignly ordained, he had a perfect plan with all wisdom uh, before all creation, he had his plan, and um, everything he has ordained comes to pass. And then uh, the two big categories that uh, the catechism talks then about his decrees are, well, there's his decree of creation and his decree of providence. He's made everything, he sustains everything for his glory. So tonight we're diving into um, creation. Now that's question and answer nine. What are God's works of creation? God's works of creation are his making all things of nothing in the space of six days by the word of his power and all very good. Uh, so that's the, that'll be the theme this evening. Our Old Testament, of course, Genesis chapter one. The account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter one. And this will be our primary text this evening. Hear God's word. Were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening... And the morning or the fifth day, then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then turning to the New Testament reading, John chapter 1, verses 1-18, here we read that the creation was through the word of God, the eternal Son. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through moses but grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him thus ends the reading of god's holy word Let's pray together. Lord, we pray once again for your blessing on us as we consider your word. We pray that we would be um, a teachable people, that we'd sit at your feet and learn from you as good disciples, good students of our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would teach us, uh, that you'd uh, shape us by what we believe. Help us, help us to uh, have all confidence in you and in your word, to trust you wholeheartedly. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's probably no chapter in Scripture uh, which is as debated and uh, the subject of controversy and, um, and uh, difficulty as Genesis chapter 1. There might, there might be. I'm just guessing, but I, th- I think it's probably a good guess, right, that, that this chapter is one of the most debated and, and one in which the debates can be some of the most heated, at least in the last couple hundred years since uh, Darwin, uh, Darwin wrote, right? Um, it's obvious why this would be such a, uh, a controversial text, and, uh, because so much depends on it. Right, it's the it's 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 the first page of scripture. It's the foundation of everything else that is going to be said and everything else that's going to be happen to, to happen. If you get this wrong, you get the whole thing wrong, right? If you get the foundation, you know, out of level, out of square, the whole house is going to be out of level and out of square. So there's a lot riding on how you interpret Genesis chapter one. Everything else comes after this, of course. So that's one reason why I think there's a lot of debate on it. Another is just that the claims of science, modern science, clash so clearly with the teaching of Genesis chapter 1. What Genesis 1 tells us about where this world came from and where we came from is so much, uh, it's so different. It's, it's, it's so opposed to everything that our culture says about where the world came from and, and, and where we've come from. This is a this is a, the the, uh, the the scientific the, the modern scientific view on on the origins of the universe dominates so strongly in in every aspect of our culture. So this is a hard position to hold that the Lord God made heaven and earth, as Genesis one so clearly teaches. So it puts the sharpest possible point on the question for us: Who are we going to believe? And there are other places in Scripture. Maybe the the point of that question doesn't hit us as strongly but here I think it really does uh, who is my authority who am I going to listen to who am I going to believe uh, what, what's the highest authority for me is it what man says or what God says what about when they disagree how do we wrestle through that uh, this, this is where the rubber meets the road but all these debates are important but of course to, to just look at the debate about Genesis chapter 1 would really be to miss the whole point wouldn't it um, the most obvious and important points that God are, is making here in Genesis one are are not uh, 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 things that are uh, you know it's not about the debate itself it's not about um, um, just which side is right and, and, and what's going and what's going on scientifically behind Genesis chapter one. The point is that God is the creator. This isn't uh, written to be a scientific text. I mean, it's, it's written as history. It's written as uh, this is what happened. This is the historical account of, of how the creation begins. But, but the point is that it's proclaiming to us over against all false gods and all other forces that God alone is the sovereign creator of everything. It's like a, it's a, it's a proclamation. It's a, it's a, it's a glorious uh, a trumpet blast saying, God is king over everything. He made everything. This evening, of course, we're going to enter into a little bit of the debate. We'll look a little bit briefly at some of the questions surrounding uh, how we interpret Genesis 1, because it does matter for us, but it would do us no good, loved ones, if that's all that we do, and if that's all that we focus on. That would be like um, getting absorbed in a debate about how and when Handel composed the Messiah, and never actually listening to the music. So let's not forget to listen to what God's word is teaching us here and what it means for us to trust him as our creator. Um, this is obviously a big chapter. There's a lot going on. We're not going to uh, handle it exhaustively. We're not going to hit everything. Those, I'm sure, questions you may have or, 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 or things you'd like to hear about that we're not going to address. We're going to try to keep our focus pretty pretty, um, uh, pretty, uh strongly right on the uh, theme of of Westminster Shorter Catechism 9 and what it says. We're going to get to some of the other stuff in Genesis 1 in a few weeks. As it comes up, we'll be talking about the creation of man. So we'll probably be back here in Genesis 1 for that. We'll be talking some about the Sabbath at some point, and that has roots here. So we'll we'll, we'll unpack more of this and know weeks to come. For tonight, we're going to be looking, really, at um, this this question and answer, the Shorter Catechism, and, and seeing the basis for it in Genesis 1. God made all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days all very good. Those are our four headings. God made all things of nothing, number one, by the word of his power, number two, in the space of six days, number three, all very good, number four. So, we're going to look at each of those in turn. So, first, God made all things of nothing. Verse 1 starts like this, of course. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. There's no, um, the, the text doesn't start with an argument or an explanation for where God came from, it's, it's going to give us an explanation for where the world came from, but there's no backstory that it can give us on God. There's no explanation for who He is. The text just begins with this assumption that God has always been, that He is outside of space and time, that He is, that He exists from all eternity to all eternity. Um, And and crucially, verse 1 tells us that there's nothing else besides Him before creation. Um, There's nothing else that's existing, kind of coterminous with God before he creates the world. He is there, and he's there, triune God, completely by himself, none other. Uh, so, many other um, so many other religions and philosophies say that uh, God was not by himself, uh, that, that creation was not ex nihilo, out of nothing, um, but that, uh, that there was some other force there. That there was that there is good and evil, you know, equally ultimate together, or or that there is, uh, you know, um, that, that they, people will say, well, scientific laws have always existed, or, or matter has always existed, and then you know it uh, got kicked off with the Big Bang. But the effect of all that is to say that that there's a rival to God, that there's some other equal, uh, equally ultimate thing. If if there's something else in the beginning before creation that is there with God, eternal like Him. Then, then there's a rival. But creation, uh, Scripture makes it so clear that there is none other. God and God alone are there, is there for all eternity. There is nothing but God until He speaks. Until He speaks and brings the creation into existence. This is so far beyond our comprehension, isn't it? That He created everything out of nothing. We can't create anything out of nothing. All right, we've got to have materials that we start with if we're going to build something. We've got to, we've got to have some, some raw matter that we can shape, that we can use to build something. But God, out of nothing, by a by word, creates absolutely everything. Every atom and speck and galaxy. He, he creates all of it. So that's uh, that's, our first, that's our first thing this evening. God creates all things out of nothing, it's only God who does it. He alone is eternal. He does it without a rival. The next, then the Catechism says he does it by the word of his power. So this is how God creates. Out of nothing, um, he speaks. He speaks, and it happens exactly as he speaks. Uh, this is the refrain that we get over and over in Genesis 1, isn't it? This is the impetus for the action. This is what drives the action and the drama of this chapter. It's God speaking. It says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be this, that, and the other. And God said, and God said. It says it over and over. And, and if you could imagine the picture, right? God speaks, and suddenly there's light. And suddenly there's, there's, uh, uh, there, 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 are, there are planets and stars and galaxies. He speaks a word. And suddenly mountains are surging up out of the sea. It's a glorious picture of his, his, his awesome power what would it have been like to witness that creation of all things as he speaks and all things spring into existence job 38 speaks of this in uh really high and and, and, and wonderful language it says where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That's what God does by His Word. He commands creation into existence and sustains it by His Word. Everything in the whole universe obeys His all-powerful Word. What do we learn here, loved ones? Well, we learn just... The, the, um, the, there, there, we can't have a, 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 an understanding of how the world came to be that excludes this. We, we cannot square this view of how the world came to be with a purely naturalistic evolutionary worldview. Um, there is no room for that. Uh, there's no room for having a process of how the world came to be apart from God's creative, all-powerful voice commanding it to be. Scripture leaves no room there. We also see here just the overwhelming power of God's voice. We addressed this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning, didn't we? That it's the word of God that brings about creation. God's voice is spoken of in Scripture as, uh, in the most uh, powerful terms. Think of Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9, describes God's voice like this. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry glory. When you look at the beautiful creation around you, um, the mountains, the forests, the the oceans, when you see the creatures God has filled this earth with, do you see that is the result of God's all-powerful voice? We should have such a awe at the power of God's word, loved ones. Such a such an awe, such a fear and respect and reverence for his word that he speaks and brings all things to pass just with a word. It's not just his authority, and crea- his, his word that brings about creation. It's also his word, of course, uh, that brings about the new creation. Same authority, isn't it? It's the same authority that gives life to dead sinners, that gave life to Adam's lifeless body, it's created from the dust. It's the same voice of the Lord which gives us life and which sustains our life. First Peter 1.23 says that you've been born again by the living and abiding word of God. We can think of Ezekiel 37 also, right? God says to Ezekiel, go preach to that valley full of dry bones, a valley full of skeletons. Go preach my word. He goes and preaches, and in this vision, the Lord causes this uh, valley of dry bones to become a, a, a living, breathing army by the voice of the Lord. He's showing his powerful word. We, we encounter this word in our, in our Bibles. That's what we hold, the powerful word of God, right there uh, between the covers of our Bibles. That's what we hear when we come to the Lord's, the Lord's uh, worship service each week, his word his word of uh, assurance of pardon, grace and peace, his benediction. When we hear it, we need to remember, this is God's word, the word that brought the Son into existence, the same word that promises me his grace and his peace. So God makes all things. He makes it all out of nothing, ex nihilo. He makes all things, how? By his powerful word. That's how he does it. Then the Catechism says, God makes all things in the space of Six days. God makes everything from nothing by the word of his power in six days. And here's where the debate comes in, of course, right? Uh, the, 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 the scriptures put this clearly, and the catechism, without much comment, simply reflects the testimony of Genesis 1. Genesis, uh, uh, the chap- Genesis chapter 1 ends like this, And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heaven and earth were finished, and all the host of them. So the Lord clearly says in his word, it took six days to create everything. Now, Genesis doesn't specify how long those days were. And um, uh, we might assume, well, yeah, they're, they're probably, uh, it's using language that we understand, is six 24-hour days days of ordinary length like any other Day, because that's the language Scripture is using, but we, we can see that also in, in Genesis chapter one. There's some uh, strange things about these days, right? The Lord creates um, light on day one. But he doesn't create the sun till day four. So so um, what's what's going on here? Um, so they're not ordinary days in that sense. These are these are miraculous days, spectacular days, full of God's power. Yet the text seems to be saying quite quite um, clearly. That uh, we should think of these as as the foundation and basis for our earthly week of six days plus one. It seems like they were six ordinary days. Some people will argue, well, well, uh, uh, it'd be much easier if we if we said these each day is is uh, represents an age, you know, is maybe thousands of years. We read in scripture a, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day with the Lord. Maybe that applies here. But, of course, if we're, if we're reading the text closely, we see that that would mean that, um, uh, uh, you know, um, God creates vegetation on the earth in day three, but not the sun until thousands of years later, day four. It's a hard view to hold. Some people will also argue that um, the chapter isn't supposed to be taken literally. That um, it's a mistake to read it and say, well, this is intending to give us a historical, literal account of what happened. That Moses never intended that when he wrote it. If Moses wrote it, they might add. Um, that that uh, this, is, um, this is poetry. This is mythology. And, and the ancient people of Israel would have understood it as poetry and mythology. But loved ones, um, you know, you can see why people would want to do that. It leaves room for an evolutionary process. It leaves room to kind of make room for uh, the consensus of secular science. But this view, too, is, is filled with problems. Uh, uh, for the one thing, does God, if God uses the evolutionary process, does he allow death to come into his creation for millions of years before the fall? And and how does, he, how does he create man in his image? If, if man is uh, the result of an evolutionary process, does God come in at some point and kind of, uh, I don't know, beam Adam down into history as a man made in his image? Um, so that, that view is uh, fraught with problems as well. And then there's the simple fact that um, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 is written clearly, overwhelmingly clearly, as historical narrative. The, the, the Hebrew syntax, the way the grammar is structured, the sentences are structured and put together, is the syntax of historical narrative. In Hebrew, you have a certain way you write poetry and a certain way you write other things, law, etc. And you have a certain way that you write historical narrative. And Genesis 1 is written that way, as historical narrative, as a fact of here's the history of how God made heaven Earth. I don't think any Israelite reading this would ever have thought, what a lovely little poem this is. What a lovely story. Uh, what a lovely mythology. I wonder if it's you know, true. Well, they would have said, this is where the history of the world starts. This is a historical account. So I think it's, it's clear that um, these are six days. They're six ordinary days uh, that God has created all things in heaven and in earth in these days. Now, that of course means that um, we face uh, a bit of a quandary. Um, we, we face this uh, this choice between the word of God and the word of man. Of course, there is so much that God does tell us in his world, in his general revelation, right, um, And there are times in Scripture where we might see an apparent conflict between what his word says and what his world says. So think of uh, Psalm 19, which says that he causes the sun to rise and to set and to run its circuit through the heavens. And, of course, we come along and we say, well, 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 science says that uh, the earth actually revolves around the sun. But I don't think there's really a, um, a conflict there between God's word and uh, the revelation that he's given us in his world. Um, I don't think Psalm 19 is intending to give us a scientific account of how the sun rises and sets. It's giving us our perspective on it and saying the Lord's in charge of it. On the other hand, Genesis 1 is different. This is giving us a historical account of what happened. And uh, so when we do come to these instances, as we do here, where the word of God and, and what, um, uh, what man seems to say about science, when, when, when there appears to be a conflict and a contradiction there, we have to decide who our authority is. We have to decide who we're going to trust and who we're going to submit to. And we should put all authority on the Word of God, shouldn't we? Why does this all matter? Why is it, why is it important? Um, you don't have to believe this to be saved, I don't think. Uh, There have been many good saints and many good Christians throughout the history of the church who took different views than I take on Genesis chapter 1. And you can take a different view, of course, on Genesis chapter 1. I'm giving you what I think is the clearest exegesis of the text. Um, uh, So so why do we need to um, believe this? I think just because it highlights for us um, the glorious power of our God. He created everything in a week, six days. That's an astounding thing. So I think by by uh, accepting that and trusting him for that, we are just that much more compelled to worship him and to trust him. All right, the final thing the Catechism says is that God created all this very good. And again, we see this in Genesis 1 over and over. This is if... Um, and God said, and God said, if that's part of the refrain of Genesis 1, the other part of the refrain is, and it was good. And he saw that it was good. It was good. And then at the very end of the chapter 131, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. God makes uh, his creation good. That's the clear teaching here. What does this mean for us? It means there's no flaw in God's original creation. There's no, nothing inherently wrong in the design. Nothing he made is inherently sinful. We live in a post-fall world where sin has come in and sin, has, um, sin seems to have destroyed and, and disrupted everything. So what are we to do then as we look at uh, God's creation? Does, it, does that mean that um, the creation has been tarnished? Is it sinful now? What does what the fall mean for, for this? Is, is it mixed? Is God's creation no longer good like he said it was in chapter 1? Well, so um, when Adam takes the forbidden fruit there in the Garden of Eden, um, in that good creation, what he's what he's doing there in that instance is that he is uh, he's trying to eliminate God from the equation. He's trying to have the goodness of God's creation apart from God Himself. He wants to enjoy the creation without the Creator. He wants uh, he he wants to get rid of God and just have the creation. Of course, after that happens, he can't actually enjoy the creation at all. We're made to enjoy it with respect to the creator. And as soon as we try to exclude the creator, we don't enjoy it after all. And so um, God places his curse on Adam, and he places a curse on the world because of him. And so after the fall, the creation, yes, it's good, but it's under a curse. It's under the wrath of God. Thorns start to grow. Things get Painful Things become futile. Things feel like a waste of time. Uh, death comes in. The world becomes sort of like a great ruin. Uh, picture like a, a great ruin from uh, uh, ancient Greece or something. And you can see it once was a beautiful thing, but now it's in disrepair and decay. That's the effect of sin on the world. But because of the effect of sin on the world, some people start to look at creation and say, well, it's not actually good, is it? it it's inherently... Um, there's, there's something wrong in the design. And again, so many uh, religions and philosophies do this. Um, and we can think that uh, the world, you know, it's full of temptations to sin, therefore there's got to be something wrong with it. Um, and because of gluttony, we say there's something inherently bad, perhaps, about food and enjoying food. Or because of drunkenness, we say there's something inherently bad about alcohol and enjoying it. Uh, because of lust and fornication, we say there's something inherently bad or unclean about sexuality. All these things that God has created good. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a grain of truth there. The world has become filled with temptations for us. John reminds us, don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't, um, don't make the things in the world ultimate. Don't treat them as gods. Uh, uh, but he doesn't mean there. John doesn't mean don't love the things God has made. For the non-Christian, uh, there is no other way. They, they, they do continue to taste um, the goodness of God's creation, but they can't enjoy the world for God's sake because they're enslaved to their sin. So they turn what God has given them into a, uh, as a gift into a substitute God, right? Just like we said about Adam, they, they kind of try to write God out of the picture, enjoy the creation without reference to the creator. But for Christians, it's different. For us, loved ones, by the glorious grace of God in Christ, we have been given new life, and so we don't live under the curse anymore. Yes, we live with the effects of it all around us and the effects of it on our lives. We can see the, the creation groaning under the curse, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, but we know Christ has come to, to bring blessing on us and, and to bring about a new creation. Romans eight nineteen to 22 it says this about um, our relationship with the creation Now. What's the now? Christ has come. Bringing about the new creation. And yes, we're still waiting for that to, uh, to take full effect. As We're waiting for Him to come and, and, uh, and bring about the, uh, the consummation of the new creation. But what Romans 8 is telling us is that God created the world good and He hasn't destined it for the garbage bin. He's going re- to, yes, destroy it, but then He's going to make it new again. Restore what he made good, what sin broke, he's going to restore it and make it even better than it was before. So, loved ones, what does this do? It gives us a great hope. It gives us a great hope in Christ and and what he's doing as he works out the new creation. It also means that we approach creation now and we can enjoy it once again as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Non-Christians can't do that. They haven't been made alive in Christ, so they can't enjoy the creation with reference to the Creator who's given it to them, and as an act of worship towards Him. We approach creation, and we see in it the glory of God, a revelation of His goodness, and we're able to taste something of the goodness of what He's made, even here in the ruins of what was created so good. The hymn, Loved with Everlasting Love, describes it like this. It says, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am His and He is mine. We have been made alive in Christ. And that means we can enjoy the goodness of God's creation uh, even as as, uh, man did before the fall. Christ has come. The uh, Joy to the World, puts this, puts this so well also, doesn't it? It says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. So that means for us, loved ones, that we can be glad and enjoy the creation God has given as we look to the fullness of the new creation that is coming. Because of Christ, we're able to enjoy the good things of creation as a, as a gift from God for His sake. And so uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the Christian doctrine of creation. God makes all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days. All oh, very good. Now let me just close by um, uh, pointing out just a, a, what a difference this makes for us loved ones. This is, uh, again, we're talking about um, something that's far removed for us in a sense, right? We're talking about the, the creation of the world. And that was a while ago. Um, but it bears so much on us and how we live, what we think about the origins of everything. If you think that the world was uh, born out of uh, you know, chance plus time plus matter, that everything is just this cold determinism, a cold materialism um, that's going to end one day uh, in nothingness, then um, you don't have much hope, do you? You don't have much reason to live you don't have much reason to structure your life according to any kind of moral authority, um, and there's no real, real lasting joys. That's a very discouraging and depressing worldview. Uh, its only logical conclusion is nihilism, as Nietzsche saw so clearly. Uh, if we believe that there is some equally ultimate force, you know, evil and good together, as some religions believe, then then there's always this doubt about whether or not good will triumph. And, and in fact, you don't even have doubt. You have a certainty. Good won't. There's always going to be a conflict with no resolution. But the Christian worldview is so much more satisfying. God made all things. He was there from all eternity. He alone, he made it. He's sovereign over it. We broke it. and He's going to save it. It's such a, more, uh, it's such a glorious story that we've been called up into. Uh, this new creation. So, loved ones, uh, let us trust Him. Let's trust our Creator. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and how it reveals uh, Your great, glorious power in creating all things. Help us to trust You. Help us to trust Your authority and Your Word and bow beneath it. And the things we do not understand, help us to submit to You. Lord, we do pray that we would uh, have eyes to see the glories of you in your creation, and that we would have hearts full of longing for the new creation that will come. All this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.